Welcome to episode one of the Stronger by Science podcast. I'm your host, Eric Trexler, and in episode one, Greg Knuckles and I discuss the potential link between creatine and hair loss. We also discuss how knowing about your genetics can influence your performance and even your physiology. Finally, I educate Greg about how crystals and gems relate to exercise physiology. We end the episode with an interview with Dr. Peter Fitchin. He's a pro-natural bodybuilder and a scientist-turned-coach. In the interview, we talk a little bit about research, including his research on HMB and blood flow restricted training. We also discuss his new book on bodybuilding that just came out a few weeks ago that he wrote with Cliff Wilson. So without further ado, please enjoy episode one and please come back in a couple weeks for episode two. Welcome to the Stronger by Science podcast. My name is Eric Trexler, your host. If you are not aware of who I am, I am the director of education for Stronger by Science. I'm a pro-natural bodybuilder. I did my PhD in human movement science. And joining me today is the temporary probationary co-host, Greg Knuckles. If you don't know who Greg is, he started Stronger by Science You've probably seen him at a fitness conference. You've probably seen his fitness articles on the web, on a number of websites, Stronger by Science, Mass, and a whole bunch of others. Uh, former holder of world records in powerlifting. Greg, how are you doing today? Doing well. And uh, let me just say, since this is the first episode, I truly appreciate the opportunity to, uh, to, to get the opportunity to at least attempt to guest host. Uh, and hopefully I don't. I don't blow my shot. <laughs> yeah, um, I'm sure you're going to do fine. I have a lot of faith in you. And since we record out of your home, I thought it would be fitting to let you join in for the first episode. <laughs> but um, just, you know, be tense, be nervous, don't make any mistakes. And as long as you don't, you'll be back every week um, in- until I find somebody different and likely better. Um, of course, yeah. So... If you're listening, you're probably familiar with uh, Stronger by Science. And what does MASS stand for? Monthly Applications in Strength Science? Strength Sport. Strength Sport. Okay. So Greg and I, we write a lot of articles, and now we are venturing into the space of the audio format, a brand new medium. Um, And the podcast is going to give us an opportunity to to make slightly different content. Um, But before we get into how the podcast is going to be formatted and what that content looks like, um, I want to start out with some disclaimers. Um, Between Greg and I, we've got probably at least six major concussions, would you say? Uh, At least. Yeah. So, So expect some of that. A lot of sentences that begin and kind of trail off into the ether and never really come full circle. Those are going to happen. Another thing to keep in mind is that Greg and I took an oath to each other that we weren't going to try too hard. Um, Correct. And so I think that should set the stage for what you can expect as a listener is um, some minor brain damage leading to sloppiness and then just some lack of preparation leading to additional sloppiness. Um, The thing that the reason we made that oath is when someone tries really hard and fails, it's just uncomfortable. 
it's you cringe a little bit and you feel bad. And we don't want to put the listeners through that. Correct. So as a listener, you can at least have faith that even if it's bad, we didn't try, so it's not lame. It's better to have not tried and not failed than than to try. Right. Yeah. Because millennial, millennials don't believe in trying hard because we want to stay if cool. You, if you think about it from like a game theory perspective, you have four potential outcomes. Either you try hard and you succeed cool which would that'd be nice yeah it's cool but it's also boring like that's that's a path many people have trodden you try hard and you fail that's not good no one likes that yeah you don't try and you fail okay that's an expected outcome sure like you you pick yourself up dust yourself off onto the next one or you don't try and yet you still succeed now that's the sweet spot that's that's very cool that's what we all aspire for yeah. Uh, and so that's what we're going for here. Yeah. Now, another disclaimer, the final one is, Gr- Greg, you're going to say something that's just egregiously offensive. I don't know if it's going to happen this episode. I don't know if it'll happen next episode. There's no way we make it to the third. <laughs> I'm not going to keep going on. So I was hoping I could break this news to you at a time when we weren't in front of microphones that were recording, but like... When I introduce someone to you that I I care very much about, (laughs) I do give them a warning. I say, like, Greg's probably going to say something. (laughs) It's probably going to be offensive. But he's a genuinely great guy with a big heart. Um, Now, all the we're probably going to get 100, 200 million listeners a week. They're not going to know that about you. They're not going to know that you're a great guy with a big heart. So we're going to take care of that episode one. Greg doesn't mean it. And another thing, he is going to try to convince you, the hardworking, honest listener, that I have said something <laughs> offensive when I clearly haven't. It's his favorite thing to do when we're in social situations is to expose me for some BS, fake, offensive thing I've said. So don't be offended by Greg and don't believe him when he tries to pin it on me. Most things that I say are meant to be taken sarcastically. Yeah, and that's the problem is we're, we both do that. You're you're way a way more egregious offender than I am in that regard. But but we both do that, so it's going to be a problem. It'll come up many times. We'll get you know we're going to make some people upset completely by accident. Now the format of the show. Let's get into business. Um, a lot of fitness podcasts are you know you have somebody on, you interview them, move it on to the next episode. We are going to do interviews, um, but that'll be the second part of each episode. The first part is going to be segments. So we'll have some time at the beginning where we kind of chat, have a little introduction. We'll do something called Coach's Corner where we talk about very applied stuff. Um, You know, Greg, between the two of us, we've probably coached somewhere between a thousand and a million people. That seems fair, right? Thereabouts. Yeah, somewhere within that range. So, you know, we've spent years under the bar, years training people. We'll talk about very applied things with exercise technique, programming, nutrition. We'll also have uh, a segment called Research Review, where we talk about recent research or just really cool research from back in the day. Uh, Feats of Strength is one we'll do, where we just talk about really strong people doing really cool things athletically. Read of the Week, if we read something that was just absolutely awesome that you should check out, we'll talk about that. We'll do question and answer segments. And then finally, a segment called To Play Us Out. And that one we will, in fact, do live. 
Now, Greg, if someone doesn't understand the kind of the source of that that segment name to play us out, can you give us a little bit of insight about that? Yeah, it's um, it, it's a tribute to uh, a man who I think we would both consider our mentor, and in a somewhat removed type of way, uh, our friend even. Um, and, and that of course is Bill O'Reilly. Yeah. Uh, we're, we're venturing into the audio space. Uh, we heard that podcasts were a thing. As far as we're aware, uh, we are actually the first fitness podcast, um, <laughs> completely unexplored media. <laughs> I, I can't, I can't keep this straight. Uh, completely unexplored medium within this little niche. No one has ever launched <laughs> a fitness podcast before. Uh, so since we're trailblazers in this area, we're, we're kind of using the show as a tribute to someone who is a trailblazer in another area. And again, of course that's Bill O'Reilly. Yeah. Um, so if you need context for what to play us out means, just Google Bill O'Reilly to play us out. And, uh, you can see a true master at work. Yeah. Um, that's really why we got into this is we knew that there's a huge part of the potential stronger by science base that cannot read. Uh, so we wanted to tap into that (laughs) and put it all in audio so you can kind of enjoy the content in cruise control. Yeah. To to this part, to this point, we've tried to appeal to like the more erudite fitness audience. Uh, now we're making a hard left turn. And with this podcast, we're trying to appeal to the, the mostly illiterate fitness audience, um, just to make sure all of our bases are covered. Right. And, and I know for us, the end game, we both want to be on Fox news some night, someday, uh, but hopefully in a prime time night slot, kind of filling Billow's shoes, you know? So we'll see if we can walk in those footsteps and, and Hey, Time will tell. But for, for now, that, that's how we'll end every episode. And it's just a tip of the cap to somebody who, who like us, blazed a trail. And I think the, the biggest testament to our success, if a second fitness podcast gets started, we'll know we made our mark. Correct. So one of the things we want to use or we want to do with this podcast, it's going to allow us to provide a response to the response to some of the articles we write. So you might see us write something in mass or strongerbyscience.com, or in a peer-reviewed journal, like you just had published, what, yesterday? Yeah. So there's going to be some buzz about those things, and this gives us a chance to kind of talk about how those things are received. So one thing we want to talk about, there's an article a few weeks ago. It's called Not Another Boring Creatine Guide, Answers to Frequently Asked Questions and Lesser-Known Benefits. And, you know, with creatine, there's a million probably more than a million articles out there saying, yeah, creatine makes you stronger and you can probably sprint better with it. But that article went into some of the lesser known aspects of creatine. Uh, We talked about a lot of things in it, um, but only one that mattered. If, if the uh, response to the article around the web is any indication, you're very correct. There was only one roughly 200 word section of that article that was, at all important and relevant yeah so (laughs) i mean there there was a lot of very good feedback um and i understand why it all focused in on one aspect but people really don't want to go bald greg 
Correct. They really don't. So there, there was a little segment in the paper, uh, in the article that was about linking creatine to hair loss. There's been one study that looked into it, and it feels like 90% of the feedback was focusing on that. We should have made the whole article about that. I mean, 6,000 yeah. words on that alone. But um, what do you think, Greg? Are you, are you terrified at the prospect of, of going bald? Uh, yes, that is the number one thing that keeps me up at night. Um, along with the homeless guy that lives in the attic. Um, but yeah, baldness is, is a terrible scourge. Um, it's, it's one of the greatest curses of the old gods that is still around in today's world. I think, um, we've all had this experience. You're going about your day. Everything seems to be more or less normal. And then you come across a bald person on the street. And suddenly, a shiver runs down your spine. Just the sheer level of spookiness is, is difficult for the human mind to process. And you just feel an instant sense of, of revulsion, really. Right. But it's um, one of those weird ones, though, where you want to look, but you don't want to look. Yeah, it's, you know like, it's like a train wreck in slow motion. Yeah, yeah. Um. So, yeah, like, I mean, we've, we've seen prominent examples of this. So just think about uh, someone like Bruce Willis. Back in the day, he had a, a budding, successful career, full head of hair, uh, very, very attractive man. I think mm -hmm. that's an objective statement. Yeah. And then, uh, you know, he lost all of his hair. Now, very disconcerting to look at. His career went to shit. Um, and when's the last we heard of him? Like Pulp Fiction, 1991? I think so. Um, yeah. Other examples, The Rock, uh, Dwayne The Rock Johnson. Yeah. If you remember him, he was the face of the WWE in the late 90s, early 2000s. Uh, again, full, perfectly normal, natural head of hair. Um, and now look at him, man. He's... Yeah. He's, he's a grotesque shell of what he once was. So, yeah, I think we can all acknowledge that um, really it, it's tough out there for bald people. So that's a very uh, reasonable fear to have. But also the fear of bald people is also very reasonable. So it's kind of a two-way street. Yeah. Um, so, so, yeah, I can, I can certainly understand why why that was the aspect of the article that everyone zeroed in on. Yeah. Now, what's your take on, I mean, why do they keep putting these Dwayne the Rock Johnson types in front of us when we, I mean, we're going to be there for two hours. We're going to be looking at the screen. Why do they keep doing it? I, I think it's like the, the classic psychological technique of exposure therapy. Yeah. So, you know, if someone has uh, an intense fear of snakes, you might like, you know, make them look at a snake and then make them get closer to a snake. And God forbid, sometimes touch a snake. Um, and eventually it just helps them get over their revulsion. I think that there is a cabal of bald people yeah. behind the scenes running Hollywood that are slowly trying to to normalize their uh, aberrant physical appearance. Yeah. I, I think it's... Uh, kind of like a normalization kind of yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah. Now it's, it, it's not normal. It's not natural, but they want <laughs> they want us to think that it is. And it's like you know they had that movie with The Rock, kind of scaling that building that was on fire or whatever. And the whole time I'm seeing it, I'm like, 
give me a Tom Hanks. He's got all the hair. You know, give me a Nick Jonas. Yeah. Give me a whole head of hair for this two-hour action thriller. Not not The Rock. Yeah. But um, another thing I always think about, can you imagine how successful Jeff Bezos would have been <laughs> if not for the implicit bias in the business sector? That's true, yeah. Um, he might have been the first self-made trillionaire if he had hair. So... Let's get to business. The article mentions this paper. There's one paper looking at creatine having some kind of purported link to hair loss. One second. So, yeah. so, so just to make this incredibly clear, th- that that was a bit. Uh, <laughs> I'm absolutely going to go bald one of these days. Like, there's a lot of baldness in my family. It is something I've come to expect. Um, like, th- the reason we use those examples is, like, I think people... I think a lot of people are afraid of losing their hair, but don't actually step back and look at, well, if it happens, like, does it matter? Yeah. And and yeah, like, I I get, you know, you have a nice head of hair, you're attached to it, but like, if you go bald, it's fine. Like, like, you will care more than anyone else in your life cares. Yeah, I'm with you. I'm also going to go bald, which means that most the people I care about in my family are also either bald or will be. (laughs) So yeah, clearly we're joking. This is the episode one thing where we actually tell you we're being sarcastic. If you miss it in episode two and beyond, that's your fault. I I think that's fair to say. Yes. But no, so obviously someone with a nice head of hair wants to keep that. So it's it's a very understandable reason that, that people are kind of cautious when they they hear creatine might be linked with hair loss. It's all based on one paper. Um, There was a single paper in some young rugby players, and it was looking at a hormone called DHT, dihydrotestosterone. And what we know about DHT is certainly if you're genetically predisposed to male pattern baldness um, and you completely block the DHT receptor in the scalp, uh, it will slow the progression of hair loss. So, So that's a link that we have, you know, a great deal of confidence in. It's been shown very conclusively. Now, what this paper showed, uh, again, looking at young adult rugby players, they did a, you know, the classic kind of crossover trial. They got them at baseline, gave them a placebo for three weeks, did a little washout phase, uh, gave them creatine for three weeks, and they measured the DHT at baseline at day seven and at day 21 within each condition. So, the same people did both conditions in this trial. Now, without doing the worst thing ever in audio format, which is just to read numbers out loud, um, when you look at the actual numbers in the paper, what you see is that the DHT levels were somewhere between about 1 and 1.5, and they fluctuate all over the place, and sometimes they're low, sometimes they're high. But what you see is that they're pretty much always within that range, 1.0 to 1.5, give or take you would not consider a DHT value to be particularly high until it was at like 3, 3.5 and beyond. So the way that people look at the paper is the creatine group saw a 50% increase in the first seven days of the creatine treatment. It went from 0.98 to 1.53. And taken at face value, you see a 50% increase in one week in a value like that. It's, it's quite jarring at you know at first glance but realistically speaking these dht values were remarkably normal throughout the entire trial 
And probably most notably, what we don't know is that little fluctuations within normal ranges of DHT actually matter when it comes to rate of hair loss. So just because completely blunting DHT slows down hair loss, that doesn't necessarily mean that a small fluctuation within the normal range actually accelerates hair loss. You know what I just realized? What? So so for the audience listening at home, full disclosure, this is our third time recording this podcast because we had audio issues the first two times. And this is something that did not occur to me the first two times. Uh, so hope, hopefully it's worth it. Yeah. Um, what people are freaking out about with this paper is a fallacy, that, not, not a fallacy, but kind of a trick that folks are very quick to notice and call out when people are hawking like a weight loss miracle cure. So like, you know, if there's some product that's like on Dr. Oz or something and they're trying to sell it as like the thing that's going to help you, you know, shed all of your belly fat and whatever, something they might say is like, well, in a study, it increased rate of fat loss by threefold or something like that. But then when you actually pull up the paper, it's like one group lost half a pound and the other group lost one and a half pounds. Uh, and this, this is kind of a very similar thing, right? Um, it's not a particularly large increase, but if you have a, a reasonably low baseline, a, a huge proportional increase could still mean jack shit. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, I, I think, I think that's kind of a trick that people use for marketing a lot that folks are getting a little more savvy to. Yeah. Uh, and if you're not savvy to it, hopefully now you are. Um, That's value. That's yeah. a solid podcast. There right we there. go. Yeah. Wrap it up here. Um, but yeah, so I, I think it's a very similar thing going on here, but, but less someone trying to sell you something and more just like creating fear. Yeah. And, and so what we see is like the placebo condition started baseline 1.26 for some reason, when they crossed over to the creatine, their baseline was 0.98. It was it was a kind of unusually low baseline value, to be honest. Yeah. Now, I, I should also say that the authors, um, you know, I don't think they were trying to induce any type of panic or anything like that. They weren't, you know, saying. But, you know, they, they tested it. It was statistically significant. They reported it, and we move on. So um, I, I don't think the the researchers did anything wrong or misreported. Um, they might have been able to provide a little more context into that. Yeah, yeah. I, I wasn't saying the researchers right. were trying yeah. to sell fear. I'm saying, like, in the subsequent... When was that paper published? Uh, 2009, I believe. Yeah, in, in, like, the subsequent decade since it's been published, like, folks yeah. talking about this study. Uh, I'm not going to impugn their motives. Like, it, it could just be people clickbaiting, right? Yeah. Um, or it could just be folks who who haven't looked into it all that much. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, like I think it's, I, I'm, I'm not trying to impugn the author's motives here and right. say that like they were the merchants of fear in this context. Yeah. And, and another thing to keep in mind, it, it's a bit cliche because people say it time and time again, but a single finding from a single relatively small study is never something that you want to take. You, you never want to blow it out of proportion. Correct. However, when you only have one study on something and you want to be evidence-based, <laughs> you, you kind of have to use what you've got. So, so it, it's difficult when, when someone says there's absolutely no link, you'd say, well, let's at least acknowledge that there's this finding out there. But when it really comes down to 
the 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 effect hair loss we've never seen a study showing that creatine actually accelerates that outcome Mm -hmm. um it's never been looked at but we've never seen that uh and another thing is that when you look at the dht values i'm a little bit skeptical that they will actually translate to a meaningful change in the rate of hair loss correct um and we've talked about this you kind of drew an analogy with like steroids you know going on like you know anabolics when it comes to hair loss we we do see that they accelerate hair loss um but it's such a super physiological change that in, in the hormone levels um you know, w- with something like this, this small fluctuation, it, it's, I, I think, pretty unlikely that we see a really meaningful effect there. Right. Yeah. So the, the thing to keep in mind is like, just, just because like thing A brings about thing B, that doesn't necessarily mean there's a linear dose response curve where 50% more of thing A will bring about 50% more of thing B. So what we know regarding DHT and hair loss is that you... Like, if you effectively suppress DHT levels to essentially zero with pharmacological interventions, that will slow hair loss. What we don't know is the degree to which variations within the normal range... And there's also at least decent reason to believe that very, very large elevations in DHT will probably speed up hair loss... Uh, I haven't seen any research on that specifically, but I mean, that's one of the like hallmark side effects of steroids. Uh, they, they pretty consistently uh, cause or accelerate hair loss. So, you know, I, I could see it being similar to like the effects of testosterone on body comp. So if it gets really, really low, bad stuff happens. If it gets really, really high, people get super jacked. If it's somewhere in the normal range, it's just kind of boring and doesn't really seem to matter all that much. Uh, and it, it wouldn't surprise me if the same thing generally held true for DHT. If it was super, super suppressed, slows down hair loss, super, super elevated, accelerates it, somewhere within the normal range, probably just doesn't matter that much. Like, I, I'm not saying that, that that is clearly the case. I'm saying that that's uh, an explanatory model that I think is most likely. Now, there was some other feedback on the article. Um, are, are we not going to get into the other hair loss papers that you found when oh, researching this? Oh, yeah, I forgot about those. Um, <laughs> yeah, well, one, of the, one of the great benefits of this discussion coming up was I got to very cautiously tiptoe into the hair loss literature on PubMed. <laughs> and uh, it's the Wild West. Um, you know, different fields mature at different rates and have different standards for research. And like you've mentioned to me that a lot of the dentistry research is a bit, uh, some of it's not, not quite as, as good as you'd hope. Yeah. Um, it's just, and it's just, it happens. It's just fields mature at different, different rates in terms of how they do research. Um, an example of that, the nursing field has come a million miles in the last 30 years. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, yeah, the hair loss research, uh, I saw one paper suggesting that um, gravity played a huge role in hair loss and particularly where hair loss occurs. And so like the, the entire paper was full of like force diagrams from like your, your like freshman year physics class of like where gravity's pulling on the scalp and then relating that to where hair loss occurs. Um, the other one, which is far more troublesome for someone like you or me is the beard. Um, 
they they were positing the theory that, and this is they actually had some interesting evidence to support it, but they were saying that hair loss on the scalp was essentially a compensatory mechanism that when you have a thick beard, it traps heat uh, around the face. And so your head is getting very hot and in order to dissipate some of that heat, that it loses the hair on the scalp so that you can just ditch the heat from the top instead of the face. So I, you know, there's only so many hours in a day and only so many uh, <laughs> little detours I wish to go on with my research reading. But if you're ever really bored and want to get into some very interesting papers, the hair loss literature is ripe for that. Eric, what? So, like, to what degree do you think that those are actual things to note and be concerned about? And to what degree do you think it's like just people throwing out hot takes? that are phrased as hypotheses. So if I'm being completely honest, I, I don't like to um, boldly throw out theories without actually hearing them out and doing some type of rigorous evaluation. But uh, if I make gut level decisions and shoot from the hip here, I just don't think either of those sound particularly plausible. Um, I would lean more toward the idea that they're just kind of hot, hot takes that got thrown out there. Because um, don't we know that at least a large portion of the variability in hair loss is simply explained by genetics, right? It, it seems to be genetics, and it seems to be that the effect that DHT has on the hair follicle itself by binding its local receptor there is what accelerates the process that is genetically determined. Uh, I think it's pretty straightforward. So I don't think we need <laughs> theories that involve <laughs> thermoregulation or gravity. <laughs> but yeah, so I, I don't, I don't want to completely throw it out, but I, I, one of the basic premises of science is the concept of parsimony. Yeah. So when you've got a simple and comprehensive explanation for something, just stick with it. Now, if a more complicated explanation explains the, the process or the effect more effectively, then, then you go with it. But in this case, I think the looking at genetics as a predetermining factor and DHT as something that actually facilitates the outcome, I think that pretty much explains it, unless I'm missing something. I mean, I'll take your word for it. I, that's not an area of the of the <laughs> literature I know anything about. I, I I actually did like your explanation of parsimony there. Um, I feel like oftentimes when people like invoke Occam's razor in an argument or in a discussion, uh, they're not using it the way it was intended, and they're more just using it as like a license for ignorance. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so so yeah like if if a more complicated idea does explain a phenomenon better uh you shouldn't just like blindly cling to a simpler idea um but yeah that's all i have to say about that <laughs> and that's all i have to say about that's that. uh th that's <laughs> that's concussion instance number one this episode <laughs> But no, I totally agree. The two things that I that I see are, like you said, I often see misapplication of the concept of parsimony just because it feels better and it's easier yeah. to not consider a more complicated model. 
Um, another thing I often see is a tendency to be evidence-based until it's inconvenient. And so... <laughs> yeah. So that actually is a very nice segue. Um, a couple other areas in that uh, creatine article that got some feedback uh, pertain to uh, how caffeine... Or I'm sorry, how creatine might interact with caffeine and how creatine might cause stomach issues. And I think that those two concepts are actually linked. Um, so a lot of people provided feedback on the article and they said, when I take creatine, especially if I'm loading, it upsets my stomach. So if you only pay attention to 30 seconds of this podcast, the value here that I, I should have included in the article on the front end, if you have stomach issues with creatine, there's some very simple ways to get around it for most people splitting up into smaller doses, you know, so if a 10 gram dose at a single sitting. So, so Eric, one thing I will say is, uh, the process for amending an article on the website is not the same as amending an article in a scientific journal. Like I you, think it is. you, you, you can go back and <laughs> make changes. Like no, that's, I, that's totally fine. I'm going to send a paper letter to Lindsay and in nine months <laughs> she'll respond and then we'll discuss the possibility of, uh, publishing a correction and a huge apology. Does uh does does the letter itself have to be peer reviewed or? It, I'd have somebody look over it, yeah. and it's got to be on letterhead. It, 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 at least a section editor, right? Yeah, yeah. But but I should have included these on the front end, uh, and maybe someday they'll find their way into the article after that nine month review. Dude, just do it this weekend. <laughs> okay, but if it's upsetting <laughs> your stomach, smaller individual doses. Making sure the powder dissolves well, usually using hot, a hot beverage will help out with that. And then taking it with food can be quite helpful as well. So creatine on an empty stomach seems to really upset my stomach. Um, and then finally, this is where I was going with this, this conversation. There's some literature indicating that creatine and caffeine don't mix particularly well. And more specifically, there are some studies showing that if we give high ergogenic level doses of caffeine during creatine loading, we don't see the performance benefits of creatine that we had expected. And after talking with a bunch of people, um, this was one area where, as I was getting at, it's, it's everyone wants to be evidence-based until they have to make a tough decision. And so there's a time there where there are like four or five papers on this topic, and they all seem to be leaning toward the idea that, yeah, like... If you give really high doses of caffeine while you're loading creatine, it just doesn't seem to reliably enhance performance. And I talked to a bunch of really good, like really sharp people about this who actually do sport nutrition research and nobody wanted to hear it. And it's like, well, but if we're evidence-based, I know there's not a lot of evidence, but we kind of have to take what we've got and either, you know, find a way to have it make sense with our theory or maybe adopt a new theory. Um, so that was one of the instances where if you tell somebody to choose between creatine or caffeine, they will uh, immediately stop listening and potentially become violent because people like both of those things. But um, Trax, I, I, I have a question. Yes. How many um, how many creatine papers include as an exclusion criterion for the subjects habitual caffeine users? I I would say very few. 
I'm just wondering if that's a potential mechanism for uh, creatine non-responders. I think the non-responder thing is much more easily explained simply by looking at starting points for creatine saturation mm-hmm. and endpoints for creatine saturation in the muscle. Um, so, so like the idea that non-response rate is a lot lower in vegetarians and vegans than omnivores. Right. Yeah. yeah. So I, I think, I think what we see with non-responders more often than not is that we just didn't see a very meaningful change in muscle creatine saturation and storage. Yeah. Um, now if they were like a really heavy, 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 because that's the other thing is people used to say, well, they used to, in studies, they would actually mix the, the creatine right into coffee or tea, which are caffeinated. And my response to that was always, well, there's a difference between a 400 milligram serving of caffeine anhydrous yeah. and a cup of coffee in the morning. Yeah, that, that's the thing a lot of people don't realize. Like when, when Eric said mixing creatine with an ergogenic dose of caffeine, like in an ergogenic dose of caffeine is a shit ton of caffeine. It is. It's, it's not a cup of coffee. It's generally what, like three to six milligrams per kilogram yeah. and more on like the six milligram per kilogram side of things. If you want to be safe, yeah, you do like yeah. a five or a six. So if you're if you're 200 pounds, around 90 kilos, it's like 540 milligrams of caffeine, which right. is five and a half cups of coffee or like three and a half monsters. Like that's, and, and, and not like spread throughout the day, like chugging it, what like 60 to 90 minutes before a workout right so when we talk about an ergogenic dose of caffeine like we're talking about a shit ton of caffeine yeah but but yeah so you bring up this concept of people and they don't really want to deal with it because it's a lot simpler to say caffeine works creatine works use both we're good but more and more i'm thinking that and after talking to people who know a lot more than me about it it really seems like the combination of the two, a high, high, high dose of caffeine with a loading dose of creatine, it seems like it just upsets people's stomachs. Yeah. And so uh, Roger Harris published an abstract. I wish he would have written the, the paper up for it, but they never bothered. But um, I think they demonstrated that really well, that when they gave the combination together, people really, their stomachs didn't like it. And then after they were kind of removed from supplementation for a little bit, they actually, their performance actually kind of trended back closer to what we would expect. Yeah. Um, so that's all to say, if you're having stomach issues, aside from making sure it dissolves and, and tweaking the dosing a little bit, taking it with food, maybe avoidance of very high caffeine doses might help as well. You know, so th- this is this is a bit of a detour, but one of the things that irks me a little bit about supplement research and where we're talking about the now kind of touches on this is that like pretty much all of the research just looks at like a single compound in isolation mm-hmm. um, or like, you know, maybe how a certain compound interacts with antioxidants or something in the case of like nitrate supplements. Yeah. Um, but for the most part, like there aren't that many studies on multi-ingredient type supplements. Uh, and the ones that are out there are typically sponsored by the people that manufacture those supplements. So there's like some conflict of interest issues there. And we we can't know for sure what interaction multiple supplements have together until that's actually tested. So like the simplest thing would just be if they're additive. So, you know. Maybe creatine gives you 5%, 10%, caffeine gives you another 2 
just add those two numbers together and that is the percent improvement you might expect to see. So that that's like the simplest model. Or in the case of caffeine and creatine, it may be like an inhibitory thing where the sum is less than the whole or the whole is less than the sum of its parts. Or it could be um, where like the whole is greater than the sum of its parts where like, you know, two things are better together than they would be in isolation. Um, I know that uh, sticking to creatine, there's some evidence that you get a little bit better creatine absorption if you combine it with bicarbonate. Um, so who knows, like in that case, it may be something where, you know, creatine and bicarbonate both might do a little something by themselves. And when you put them together, they're even better than, than the sum of the two effects. Um, and like, I mean, I get that there's not like thousands of supplement trials constantly ongoing, but most people do take a mix of supplements. It's not like, you know, I only take creatine and that is the only thing I ever take. Yeah. Uh, most people are, you know, especially if you take like a pre-workout, that's like a blend of like seven or eight different things typically. Um, and like, even if all of those things do do a little bit, some, a little bit of something by themselves, you can't know that you can just add those effects together and assume that that's what the combination will give you. Right. Yeah. And it, it's a good point. And I, I know, um, Jason Kaliva down at Coastal Carolina, he's a sport nutrition professor. He talks about that a lot. The mm-hmm. idea that we, we actually do need to start testing these combinations that everybody's using, but they're assuming that all the inde- independent effects are kind of adding in, in, in a completely complementary fashion. Well, I mean, it's the same thing with training studies as well. And, and I feel like people do understand this when it comes to training studies, but understand it less when it comes to supplement research. So, you know... There's research that higher volumes are good, and there's research that higher intensities are good. If you just put those Double two, that up, yeah, yeah. If you just put those two findings together completely naively, well, sure. Let's just do you know thirty triples per workout with ninety percent of your max, and like that must be the best way to get swole. Yeah, and like no, and six days a week. Yeah, of course. Because <laughs> I uh, heard frequency is yeah, good. Yeah, because frequency might be good as well. So yeah, let's just put all of those things together. And like, you know, people hear that and it's like, of course, that's not how it works. Um, But that seems to be the implicit assumption for how it works with supplements, uh, which, you know, may be the case, may not be the case. Until the studies are done, we can't know for sure. Yeah. So another thing that comes up a lot, you know, we're we're speaking about caffeine a little bit is... I, I feel like this third take for the podcast is actually turning out like a fair bit more informative than the other ones. I think so. I think the new policy moving forward should be everything we do, we do it thrice. Oh, God. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Okay, so whenever you talk caffeine, genetics comes up a lot uh, because there's there's been some new research really over the last five or ten years showing that, uh, you know, different genetic predisposition to caffeine metabolism seems to have a potentially meaningful effect on how your body reacts to caffeine. Um, Potentially when it comes to long-term health outcomes, potentially when it comes to sport performance, certainly when it comes to how quickly it's metabolized. Yeah. So there's the the CYP1A2 gene, I think. Uh, That's off memory, so somebody can fact check me. Pretty sure that's right. It's definitely a a cytochrome P450 isozyme of some type. But... (laughs) Just... Just flexing on them there, Trex. One, A, two, in some combination. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
but it, it's it's led a lot of people to get into this. Uh, I mean, now you can get your genetics tested um, quite easily with just a direct to consumer kind of thing. You buy a kit, you send it in, and they let you know if you're a fast or a slow caffeine metabolizer. Now, you recently wrote an article for the site that talked a little bit about almost like a cautionary tale of how knowing your genetics, in some cases, you might know a little too much for your own good. Do you mind giving a little summary of that that article? Both too much and too little. Um, Yeah, so uh, we we recently republished an article on the site that originally appeared in Mass. Uh, The title of the article, uh, which I should have pulled up and don't, um, I have it pulled up. Well, what was the title? When I you're when just, I you're said just, you're just hanging me out to dry. When here. I said we weren't going to try, I meant Greg wasn't going to try. Jesus uh, Christ! Well, you're the one with the outline <laughs> over there. I I don't know what we're about to get into. Okay, it's called genetics based expectations affect your physiology. Well, I had it pulled up by this time, and you used the correct form of effect, which is that puts you in the top point oh oh one percent of the population. Puts my editor in the top point oh oh one percent of the population. Um, yeah, so, so what they did in this study is they, it, it was actually two different studies, um, both with pretty large cohorts with like, uh, over a hundred people per study. And both of the studies were written up as one paper. Um, and so what they did is in each one, they would have people perform a, a battery of tests or assessments. Um, and they would also give a blood sample They'd send the blood sample off to the lab and look at what allele variant of a particular gene those people had. And then at random, they would tell them if they had the, like, quote-unquote, good version or bad version. The the term, the term terminology they used in the study was high risk or low risk. Um, but they, they told—so they, they knew what allele variants the people actually had, but they told them they had either the good one or the bad one at random. Uh, and then they would repeat the same battery of tests. So in one study, they uh, were looking at the um, CREB1 gene, C-R-E-B1, um, which has implications for aerobic exercise and thermoregulation. And in the other study, they were looking at the FTO gene, um, which has implications with uh, hunger, satiety, and obesity. Um and so, again, just to recap, they put them through some tests, sequenced their, their genome, and then, you know, told some people the, the correct. So basically, like, a quarter of the people had, like, the good version of the gene, were told they had the good version. About a quarter of the people had the bad version, were told they had the good version. About a quarter of the people had the bad version, were told they had the bad version. And about a quarter of the people had the good version, but were told they had the bad version. Uh, and then repeated those same those same battery of tests. And so for uh, the study looking at the CREB1 gene, um, they looked at things like um, maximum CO2 to O2 uh, exchange rate, uh, pretty similar to uh, respiratory exchange ratio. Um, They looked at perceptions of heat. Um, They looked at time to task failure during an aerobic test. Um, and just things like that. And for the FTO study, the one implicated in hunger, satiety, and obesity, um, they looked at uh, a hormone called GLP-1, which is implicated in satiety. They looked at self-reported fullness. Um, and they also looked at another hormone called uh, acylated ghrelin. And so essentially what they found 
is that for most of the outcomes they looked at, regardless of whether someone actually had the good or bad version of those genes, if you told someone, uh, hey, you have the good version of this gene, they had the the they had a a positive both perceptual and physiological response. Um, so for example, with the CREB1 study, uh, regardless of whether people had the the good or bad version of the CREB1 gene, um, they would report feeling more overheated sooner uh, during the exercise session if you told them they had the bad version of that gene. Um, or the And so you could hear that and say, well, that's not all that impressive. That's a classic nocebo effect. You're telling someone something's wrong and they have negative perceptions. But it actually affected physiology as well. So it affected ventilation, so like breathing kinetics, uh, and it affected the CO2 to O2 exchange rate as well. For the uh, FTO study, um, the people who were told they had the good version of the gene um, reported greater fullness after consuming a standardized meal, uh, which, again, you could hear that and say, oh, that's, that's not too impressive. Like, that's just a perceptual response. Could be a placebo effect. Um, but they also had a greater elevation in GLP-1, which is a hormone associated with satiety. So, again, not just a perceptual response, but also a physiological response. And then they also did an, an analysis comparing... Um, Comparing basically whether genotypes matter, like the actual genotype mattered more or the perceived genotype mattered more. And for CO2 to O2 exchange rate, for um, perceived feelings of overheating, for GLP-1, and for um, perceived fullness, the perceived genotype actually mattered more than the actual genotype people had. Um, so like perceptions there mattering more than the actual genetics. So I, I think I think people could hear that and probably like draw too strong of conclusions. Uh, like the the impression I get is that Greg Knuckles, before God and country, is saying that <laughs> your genes don't matter, mindset is everything, mind over matter, and don't be weak. Yeah. So 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 that's the hot take version. Okay. Um, which I think is probably too strong of a takeaway. Um, but yeah, I, I do think that um, something we can see from this study is that is that people may like somewhat overreact both like perceptually and physiologically to uh, negative information about their genes. And so like I've never been very high on direct consumer genetic testing like 23andMe and similar services. Uh, and, and one of the reasons why is one of the genes that 23andMe looks at is your ACTN3, your ACTN3 gene. Um, AC, it codes for a protein that essentially affects shortening velocity of fast twitch fibers. Um, and one pretty consistent research finding is that elite strength and power athletes uh, are, are more likely to have one version of that gene than another version of that gene. Um, and so... I'm pretty sure that's the only like strength power related gene that 23andMe looks at. It, it might look at um, it might look at, at one or two others, but that's like that's the main one that people bring up to me all the time. And so people will message me and say like, "Hey, I did 23andMe, and it said that I have the bad version of the ACT and three gene. Like, am I screwed?" Um, and like, no, they're not. 
So if you if you look at like even elite sprinters for whom maximum shortening velocity is going to matter way more for them than it would for like powerlifters. Um, something like half of the competitors at like elite, like national and world class levels, um, have at least one of the bad copies of the ACT and three gene, and something like fourteen percent have two of the bad alleles. Um, so it may be one of those things that you know, if you don't have the correct genotype there, it could stop you from becoming Usain Bolt. But clearly, a non-negligible number of people are are capable of being like national and world class sprinters with the wrong genotype there um and then also like it's just not telling you that much so in 2011 there was a review paper published um basically going over all of the different independent genes that had been found to that point that affected strength power phenotypes and as of 2011 there were 22 genes that were known and so like if 23andme is only testing for actn3 uh like, of the known strength-power genotype that people knew about in 2011, so I'm sure there's more genes that people have identified now, uh, knowing about that one gene locus uh, only tells you about 4.5% of that strength-power genotype. Yeah. So, like, it's not telling you jack shit. Right. Um, but, like, yeah, I've seen so many people get that one little bit of information from 23andMe and start, like, catastrophizing it, saying, like, well, my genes suck. I'm never going to get big and strong. And, like, one, that's not even what ACTN3 does. It's yeah. it's about shortening velocity. It's not about hypertrophic potential or, like, maximum contractile force potential. It's just shortening velocity. Um, so, yeah, like, maybe if you want to be, like, a sprinter, a shot put thrower, put some stock in it. You want to be a powerlifter or a bodybuilder. Probably doesn't matter all that much. Uh and even if it did, you know, that's telling you about one out of 22 genes that may make a difference. Um, so, yeah, like, I think that I, th I think that this study speaks to the more general idea of, like, expectancy effects. Yeah. Um, and if you have positive expectancy, like, if you go into something expecting a good outcome, you are more likely to have a good outcome, um, regardless of your physiology. And if you go into something expecting a bad outcome, you're more likely to have a worse outcome. It's like if you just have like a shit genetic draw and you expect good things, you're probably still not going to get great results, but you're, you're going to get better results than you would have otherwise if you went into it like with a fatalistic out, out, outlook. Yeah. Um, and, and the same thing, like if you have good genes for lifting and you go in thinking that you're average or you suck, like you're still probably going to get decent outcomes just because like... That's what your genes are influencing you towards. But you're probably not going to accomplish as much as you otherwise would have. Um, so, yeah, I, I don't think I don't think the the level of information you can get from like direct consumer genetic testing inspires much confidence. Like it, it tells you about such a small portion of various polygenetic traits that it's not worth much in the first place. And if it gives you. Um, if, if it gives you an undesirable result about a gene that influences some aspect of physiology you care about, like, that could nocebo you. And in the case of, like, the strength power phenotype, your other 21 genes may be fantastic, and they're just testing for ACTN3, and you come away with the complete wrong conclusion. So, yeah, yeah. I, I think... Uh, 
I think one of these days gene testing may be worth something. Um, and I think in like clinical and lab applications, it's worth something. But I think uh, for the most part, like g- direct to consumer genetic testing, testing uh, is a waste of time and money and likely to do more harm than good. Yeah. And I mean, like you said, first of all, you're with many of these things, you're not getting the complete picture by looking at a single gene. And also, I always advocate against asking questions that you don't actually intend to act upon. Right. Yeah. So we've talked about this. When you were in full like thesis mode, you were running a study and two companies. And you were consuming enough caffeine every day to probably kill a a rhinoceros, if not an elephant. Correct. And if at that time I said, hey, Greg, bad news, man. <laughs> Your saliva sample came back. You're a pretty slow caffeine metabolizer. You might want to lay off. What were you realistically going to do with that information? Absolutely nothing. Nothing at all. And so if you love weightlifting or powerlifting or just lifting in general, someone comes back and says, hey, this one particular gene (laughs) could have been better. Yeah. Come on. Don't don't throw that away and, and convince yourself that you're screwed over that. You know? Yeah. Now, the, the one thing I love about that paper is obviously the subjective stuff you would expect. Yeah. But the fact that the physiology changed, I find absolutely fascinating from yeah. just the just the expectation. And one of the things you talk about in the article is that classic study. It's not old, but it's classic. I forget what year it's, it's from. Are you talking the, the aerial study? I'm talking the the steroid one. Yeah, that's old. That's, How, what, what that's year 1974. That? Oh, then it's doubly classic. Yeah, old and incredible. But wasn't it like they they convinced they told the the subjects they were on steroids and they put like a hundred pounds on their total or something like that? Uh, yeah. So, uh, the entire duration of the study was 11 weeks. Um, they recruited people and told them. Uh, we're going to train you really hard for seven weeks. We're going to test squat, bench press, military press, and seated military press because they have the correct priorities and they know that pressing is the only thing that matters. Um, So we're going to train you really hard. We're going to test you on those four lifts pre and post. And the ones of you that make the best progress, we're going to give you free legal steroids. So like they're in, so like on the front end they're incentivizing people to train hard and make as much progress as possible because they're dangling that carrot in front of them. Um, but then at, at the end of the first seven weeks, uh, they just like randomly selected a sample of their original sample instead of taking the people who were like pre-selected yeah. to to make the best progress. Um, and then they gave them saccharin tablets uh, and told them that I think I think they told them that it was D ball. Um, had them train for another four weeks uh, and tested them again. And so for, for the first seven weeks of the study, they put a combined total of, I believe, 20... No, they put a combined total of 10 kilos, so 22 pounds on those four lifts put together. Which, like, that's like five pounds a lift. Which, you know, if we're talking about, like, elite level athletes, like, eh, whatever, it is what it is. But these guys, they were like intermediate lifters at best. I want to say they're the squat max at the start of the study was like 350, 360. So like, you know, they, they had some prior training experience, but these weren't like elite power lifters. Um, so yeah, like they put about 10 kilos on those 
four lifts put together, which isn't anything to write home about. Then in the ones that were given the like placebo steroids for just four weeks, they put uh, 45 kilos, which is like right at 100 pounds on those four lifts in just four weeks. Man. So so we're talking, we're, we're going from 10 kilos in seven weeks to 45 kilos in four weeks, which is like almost an eightfold increase in rate of progress. Yeah. And like the only change was people were told that they were being given steroids, even though they weren't. Um, and I just think that's wild. And, and so one thing I will say is, uh, the, the main study I was talking about, the, the Turnwall study looking at the Krebs gene and the FTO gene, um, like we said earlier in the podcast, it's improper to put too much faith in just like one single research finding. Um, at least the stuff they found with like the, the diet portion of the study with the FTO gene, um, was basically a replication of a prior study as well, uh, where what they did in that study was instead of manipulating people's expectations about their genetic profile, um, they manipulated people's expectations about what they were actually putting into their body. So in that study, they used milkshakes, um, and they gave, uh, they gave three different groups of people milkshakes, or maybe the same group three different times. I can't remember which, but they gave them milkshakes, uh, and all of the milkshakes were 380 calories. And what they did is they uh, manipulated the labeling of the milkshake. Um, so, so no, it, it was only two different milkshakes that they gave them. Uh, so one of the labels basically portrayed it as like this very indulgent dessert type milkshake, like a lot of fat, a lot of sugar, the label said that it was 620 calories and Mm -hmm. you know like the visuals of it were like that of an indulgent dessert and the other milkshake again exact same 380 calorie milkshake it was labeled to say that it was only 140 calories and it was presented as like a light healthy alternative to you know bad unhealthy fatty milkshakes but the exact same milkshake just just labeled and packaged two different ways um and in that one, they also looked at fullness and satiety, and they looked at ghrelin, which, again, is is associated with hunger. Um, and when people drank what they thought was the 620-calorie milkshake, uh, fullness was greater, satiety was greater. Again, those are perceptual responses, very prone to placebo effects, not that exciting. But there were also big uh, differences in ghrelin in that study as well. So you know, that's like an actual physiological thing. Like that's, that's a hormone being affected, um, that like does cause hunger, um, just simply by manipulating people's expectations about what they put into their body. Um, which is very, very similar to the findings of like the, the FTO portion of, of that other study we were talking about. Yeah. So these, it, it appears to be a, you know, at least in a couple instances, a, a fairly reliable finding that some of these expectations can kind of have some influence on a variety of these physiological responses, Yeah, not even the subjective ones. Now, the study finding that 100-pound gain in strength in four weeks, would it be controversial to suggest that those are near HMB-level gains that were occurring? <laughs> uh, I, I, think, I think that is a fair thing to say. No. For our first ever podcast interview, we got Peter Fitchin on. And so we talked to him about HMB. If you don't know who Peter is, he's a pro-natural bodybuilder. He coaches a bunch of bodybuilders. Um, 
did a PhD in nutrition where he studied HMB. He did some some research on blood flow restricted training. We got into that. And he shamelessly tried to shill his new bodybuilding book on our podcast in the interview. And we, we shut that down immediately. I I could not sit there and take the disrespect. It was insane. We were trying to ask him questions about science and stuff. And all he wants to do is sell things. It was like a used car lot. Yeah. And, and it's also like, dude, like we built this platform. Uh, 100 million listeners a night. 100 million listeners. Uh, we put in the work. We're not going to allow some hack to come on and... A great hack. I love Peter. He's a very good hack. Yeah. But to to abuse this platform that we've put our blood, sweat, and tears into building to to shill for some ebook, which I'm sure is a perfectly fine ebook. It's actually a real book through like human kinetics. Oh, never mind. (laughs) It's like made out of like leather and stuff. (laughs) Shows paper. (laughs) (laughs) Shame on you. Uh, yeah, so so stay tuned for that interview. And by the way, when you hear our interviews, if we make like references to like how poorly current President Obama's doing, it's because they've been in the can for weeks. <laughs> <laughs> so if we make a completely dated reference, it's because most of these recorded were recorded in like the late 1990s, basically. Correct. They're quite old. But we're gonna get rolling. We're gonna find. We're gonna get rolling. We're gonna find a rhythm. We're gonna get these episodes out regularly. Uh, every two weeks. Sure. Uh, we'll aim for every two weeks and, uh, you know, get that hundred million listenership up to, I don't know, tens of thousands. Um, tens of thousands of hundred millions. Well, I think it's a figure of speech. So in, in the two towers, when Saruman looks over his army of orcs, uh, he definitely has more than tens of thousands. So I okay. think that just signifies an indiscriminately large number. Okay, fair enough. Yeah. So yeah, we will get consistent with that. Stay tuned for the Ten, interview with... Tens of thousands is like the highbrow version of over 9,000. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> now, before we get to that interview, Greg, somebody's got to play us out. And to play us out, I have part one of a one-part installment the first and final installment of a segment I'm calling Eric's Seder Stories. Oh, God. So, <laughs> I was invited to my first ever Seder over the past week or so. And it, it's incredibly kind to invite... So, I'm, I'm not Jewish. To invite someone into your home to participate in something like that, it, it's such a kind thing to do. I was so honored that they would let me... Uh, experience that with them and so when you go into something like that you want to be extremely polite you know you want to have an appropriate amount of reverence for the event and so i'm like all right be on your best behavior like show respect be overly kind and overly non-controversial in all conversations just out of respect now we're sitting around the table and someone you know we're we're all just being polite you know I, i don't know many of the people there and someone asked me what i do for a living and Greg, you know this, I completely gave up on life. I was, you know, perfectly <laughs> groomed to be a professor. And now I'm the assistant to a blogger. 
And when people say assistant blogger, I say no, assistant to a blogger. Uh, but someday I might be a blogger myself. It's like, it's like a Dwight Schrute, Michael Scott relationship. Exactly. I am the assistant to a blogger. But I always say, but yeah, but I did do like I'm I'm okay. Like I, I did do a, like a PhD or whatever. And they said a, P, a PhD in what? And I said it, every my PhD is in human movement science. But when I tell people that, they think I'm like an anthropologist. Mm-hmm. They think it's like movement of human civilizations across the globe. So I, every time someone asks me what I studied i give a different term exercise science sports science uh kinesiology something like that so this time i said kinesiology big mistake (laughs) big mistake so again we're both trying to be excessively polite um because we don't know each other this is a religious event i'm just i'm literally just so so... someone thought you got a doctorate in pe no worse so i'm just like incredibly thankful they would even invite me into their home so i'm trying to be very polite now i said kinesiology do you know what his response was what he kind of got like a smile like and he says a lot of skeptics out there okay and i said are there (laughs) and so i'm trying to be polite like i i did not know that there were exercise science skeptics as a whole like are there people out there who are saying like, I don't think heart rate goes up when you run, <laughs> you know? Well, I, our our president still holds the belief <laughs> that you have like a predefined amount of energy that you have to like pace throughout your life so it doesn't run out. Yeah, set number of heartbeats. Yeah, so, so I, I so actually... there, there there is some level of exercise science skepticism that is alive and well at the at the top of our government. That was the first thing that came to my mind. Yeah. And so I was going to let him take it there because I'm like, the last thing I'm going to do is bring up like anything political. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, after some digging, I'm reading from a website here. The headline is, well, let me just start how it says, kinesiology is a science involving the study of human movement, whether voluntary or involuntary. Yeah. Good start. Yeah. I'm on board with that. Kinesiology is widely applied in sports science and orthopedics. And here's where it it takes a turn. Sure. But did you know that you can also apply it in conjunction with your crystals? What? You can also apply it in conjunction with your crystals. Interesting. So Eric's Seder story. You have me hooked. um, Basically, there's this whole like subfield out there that I had no idea about that is like trying to weave kinesiology together with using like minerals and crystals and rocks and stuff to like it's like did you notice that when you held the crystal in your hand that it made your that hand a a lot stronger sure makes sense so um basically i was sitting at the table and the, the person was trying to be polite and just say well that's nice i don't i there's some merit to it i can't believe there's all these terrible skeptics out there just to humor me and they thought i did my phd in how minerals, when we hold them, make us substantially stronger <laughs> oh via some type of like. I, I just is that is that a is that a common thing floating around out there? I had never heard of it until this past weekend, and it made me feel. I already feel horrible about my life decisions. I didn't think I could feel worse. I'm, I mean, so, I so I'm going to say something, and I'm going to try not to be discriminatory here because oh. <laughs> should you not say it. <laughs> 
Yeah, I'm going to. We we gave that disclaimer. No, because I feel like I can say this because I, at one point in my life, was one of these people. Um, these are these are Asheville people, right? Uh, there are a lot of crystal stores in Asheville. I can tell you that. Yeah, I mean, so that could be something where, if you said kinesiology to someone from Asheville, that means a completely different thing than. If you say it to someone who lives virtually anywhere else in the country. Yeah, I just I had no idea that this like crystal subculture had commandeered kinesiology and claimed it for their own. So I spent that entire night not realizing that everyone at the table thought I did my PhD in kind of the spiritual healing powers of crystals and how they affect performance. Oh my god. Um, when I finally found this website, it was sent to me because I brought this up. Did you did you have an opportunity to correct the record at any point? No, we just had complete I I just continued the conversation the most confused <laughs> I had ever been in my entire life. Oh no. And and I really want to reiterate they were purely doing it because they were it was a very, very nice person who was simply humoring me. You, you should have just asked, like, bro, like, what do you think I do? It. We eventually got there, but again, trying to be as, you know, hum, like, very polite, non-confrontational, just, like, trying not to rock the boat. Because I don't, I don't know what what everyone is, is on board with, you yeah. know? But um, it, it was just a completely, like, two parallel conversations. I was talking about, like, you know, weight training. And I didn't know you we were talking about minerals. I got very confused, <laughs> crystals and minerals. And uh, yeah, so apparently the, the the there's this whole world out there. And again, they were just trying to humor me and trying to comfort me and make me not feel so bad about the fact that I dedicated 10 years of my life to that. Oh my God. It was so sweet of them to humor me. And uh, it was not until days after that I realized, wow, I didn't know what that conversation was about until now. I mean, has has your girlfriend at least like tried to take the opportunity to set the record straight with her? Where where was she in all of this? I think like w- was she at the table with you? I think equally confused. Okay, it, yeah, okay. she dug up the the link to the article several days later and I said, "I see. I think I understand why." why this conversation was so disjointed and confusing for us. I see. Yeah, I, I was wondering if it was something where, like, she knows her family, she knew that they were thinking that, you didn't know that, and she just hung you just, out to dry. Just to watch me squirm? Yeah. <laughs> I don't think she's uh, I don't think she's cruel enough to let that happen. I, and if, if she is, I'd rather not know. I mean, the fact that she knew enough about it to find that link. Like, if, you, I, if you're just having that conversation and you don't know that it means crystals... What search terms are you going to punch in where crystals come up? I don't know. I don't know how she stumbled upon that. I feel like now, there's a trail of breadcrumbs I'm here. actually, I, I, as we speak, I'm getting very suspicious <laughs> and a little, a lot bit upset because obviously she knew how to find that. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, so the, the moral of the story is if can't, you're- Can't a, trust women. If you're a young student out there studying kinesiology and you go home for like Thanksgiving- That was, or, that was a joke, by the way. What'd you say? I just said you can't trust women. Oh, that's horrible. I, I was I was just trying to get the hottest take. Possible. I thought we were going to make it to the second episode. We're not. Um, <laughs> that's that's a joke. I respect women, but realistically, if I, if I didn't, my wife would kick my ass. She's scary, but sweet. Yeah, no, your wife is objectively better than you in every way, and you and I both know that. I'm not going to contest that for a for a second. Yeah, 
so the moral of the story, a lot of the people listening to our podcast maybe studied a kinesiology related field or they're thinking about it. When you go home for Thanksgiving, you go home for a Seder, you go home for whatever. Be very specific about your terminology. Just call it exercise science. Just call it exercise science. It's a lot easier. It doesn't sound as fancy, but it gets the job done. Yeah. Now, to finish out this episode, we've got an awesome interview we recorded with Peter Fitchin, and we hope you enjoy it. Today we are joined by Peter Fitchin. So first of all, Peter, welcome and thank you for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. Now, Peter, I understand that you have a PhD and you're a natural pro bodybuilder. Is this correct? Yeah, that that is correct. <laughs> Greg, will you agree that anyone with those two uh, credentials is kind of automatically a legend and a hero? Uh, I, I don't think that's an unfair assessment. Okay, so that's on record. Perfect. So I got what I wanted out of this recording, but um, let's go forward anyway. So Peter, for people who don't know who you are, you, you did your PhD at University of Illinois. Uh, mm -hmm. You're an NGA pro bodybuilder. Uh, what else do people need to know about who you are and what you do? Um, yeah, so yeah, I got my so I I would say educationally, I got a, my PhD at the University of Illinois. Um, I got my bachelor's and master's. So my PhD is in nutrition. My bachelor's and master's are actually more basic biology. So I have a bachelor's in biochem and a master's in physiology. Um, I got a CSCS, so I'm a certified strength conditioning specialist. Um, I've been competing since 2004, lifting since 2002. Um, so I'm not all that old, but I always kind of feel like the old guy because I'm like, yeah, my first show, like I told someone yesterday at the gym, yeah, my first show was 15 years ago next month. You know, <laughs> like, yeah. Um, How yeah. old were you when you started? I was lifting. eight. I was eight. I started lifting at sixteen. Did my first show at eighteen. But I mean, I was like one forty-five on stage. Like I, I, I mean, I gained. I went from one forty, one twenty-five to one seventy in the first year and a half of lifting, and still didn't look like I lifted. But then dieted for a show. Yeah. Um, yeah. I. I mean, ca I, careful with the body weight talk. I, I'm a bantam weight, so just relax. Yeah, I well, I mean, I my yeah. When I went my pro cut, I was in the <laughs> low one sixties, and when I yeah did my first pro shows, I was actually like 158, 159 carved up because I was even leaner. Um, yeah. So yeah, I, I'm not a very big guy, but yeah, I, it took a long time for me to look like I actually lifted. Um, yeah. Yeah. And so other than that, um, I've published, I think 18 peer reviewed publications, although there's been another one that's been accepted. So I think it'll be 19 soon. Um, some of that's related to bodybuilding, some of it's other nutrition stuff. Uh, a lot of what I did in grad school was uh, muscle loss and dialysis patients and, and research. Um, my dissertation was actually HMB supplementation and dialysis patients. Mm -hmm. um, and then other than that, uh, I, I got a book that is coming out here in the next couple of weeks. Um, it's been selling really well, which is really cool because um, it's not even out yet. So pretty pumped to finally get that out. 
Peter, this this is a podcast, not a commercial. Okay, let's try to keep on 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 focus. Here. <laughs> I mean, this isn't just some sales mechanism every, for you, Peter. We're every, trying to get information out to the people. Every I think every podcast I, I've done quite a few podcasts, <laughs> recorded quite a bit of stuff lately, and everyone is it's like promote your book, promote your book. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I literally no. drove drove to Illinois or Indiana to go meet up with Cliff and just record a bunch of stuff for the for the book. <laughs> yeah, we don't we don't we don't do that around here that's that's not that's not the game we play not at all if anyone spends a dime on something that we don't own we are automatically against that so <laughs> we're gonna go back and edit out that advertisement that you just put in um but okay so i'm glad that you brought up research because i did have a couple questions for you so you did your dissertation on hmb and I don't want to put you on the spot, but I looked back at some of your HMB papers. Mm -hmm. None of them showed seven, eight, 10 kilogram increases no. in lean mass. And so I guess the first question is really a two-part question. Part one, how did you guys blow this this bad? <laughs> and part two, are you willing to apologize publicly? <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, actually, so I know you're talking about the the like the huge gains in the in some of like the Wilson research. Um, they Wilson, 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 among others. Yes, among others. Um, but they actually replicated that that study and didn't find anything recently, if I if I recall correctly. Um, but I, I was mainly looking at clinical populations because even so when I was kind of when I was in grad school, that was before some of the data that seemed almost too good to be true in, in athletes came out. And so um, I was looking more elderly clinical populations because we had a population of dialysis patients. We were running a multi-site NIH clinical trial. It would be pretty easy to, you know what I mean, for me to recruit dialysis patients. They have muscle yeah. wasting you know, no, no studies had been done on HMB and dialysis patients. There were results that I would say are borderline too good to be true in AIDS patients and cancer, cachexia, and, um, you know, some of the elderly, some of the, you know, some of these other populations that tend to have muscle loss. Um, and so, you know, I thought, oh, you know, so we designed a study and, you know, even in our, like the review we wrote on HMB and elderly and clinical populations, we were very, um, you know, very like, I don't know, kind of skeptic, you know what I mean? To kind of very, tried to kind of dance around the fact that, yeah, you know, this is almost too good to be true that you're seeing like two kilogram increases in lean mass in like 12 weeks and someone who's wasting and, and things like that. Yeah. Um, and, you know, so we just did the study and, and, you know, the results are what the results are. And um, we, it was six months. Uh, so it was, it was one of the longest term HMB supplementation studies to date, six months, double blind, Placebo controlled. We checked compliance with blood a couple of times throughout the intervention, um, and and yeah, we we found pretty much no difference in in anything measured um, yeah. in the study. And and just so the listeners are aware, um, I'm being a smartass. P Peter's group did some excellent work on HMB, and if, <laughs> if you want to understand what we're referring to, Greg wrote an article on Stronger by Science about some of the too good to be true type HMB studies. Now, I did want to ask a serious question about HMB. Based on the work you've done, the reviews you've written, do you see an application for HMB in any kind of physique or strength athlete? And, and basically, who who could it be useful for, if anyone? Yeah, I mean, 
I don't know. At this point, I don't really recommend it to any strength or physique athlete. I could maybe see some rationale like if someone had a really low protein intake and we're at risk of muscle loss, like maybe, you know what I mean? Maybe that would be a situation where there might be some benefit like that would that would be the place I would look if I was looking to see if there was a benefit, probably. Um, But what about what about just for like new lifters? Because isn't there there fairly consistent evidence there? Yeah, there there's some muscle damage stuff in in new lifters that it, it might help prevent muscle damage and reduce soreness and and accelerate recovery. Um, so maybe you know in them, but it you know the the effect how much of a difference is it going to make? I don't know, and it's it's relatively expensive. I don't know what the cost is now because I haven't looked to buy it recently, but I know at the time we were doing the study, it was like a dollar a day to get a three gram dosage, which was the dosage used in, in basically all the research. Well, um, see, Peter, that's, that's the mistake you made. If you're willing, <laughs> if you're willing to accept, uh, some reasonable level of lead contamination, you can buy, <laughs> you can buy a thousand kilos for like 50 bucks on Alibaba and you're set. Yeah. For yeah. Yeah. You know, but I, I just, I don't know. You know, a lot of times with supplements, you have the ones that, you know, Eric would probably agree with this. You have the ones that clearly seem to do something, the ones that clearly seem to not. And then you kind of have the ones, well, maybe in this situation, maybe this, or, oh, we need some more data, that kind of gray area. And with a lot of the gray area ones, it's like, okay, well, if there's no risk and the only risk is losing money, then it's how much money do you want to spend on something that may or may not do something? Yeah, I kind of ran into that. Um, first, I want to mention I love the fact that you did your dissertation on HMB, and your first response was, "I don't know." Uh, I think <laughs> I, I think I think that means you're really good at science, honestly. Um, like I, I'm not being a smartass. I really love that. Um, we kind of ran into the same thing with my dissertation, where like, you know, with with some of the beetroot studies, you see, it's like if you want to actually get the effective dose from a quality tested product you're looking at five to six grams a day or five to six dollars a day oh man which is a lot um and to address greg's point on the uh contaminated hmb uh peter would you agree that for a hemodialysis patient uh, <laughs> high lead contamination would be contraindicated yeah yeah i we actually had to test to make sure even taking hmb we had to get approval to just do like acute pilot studies on like time course of of how quickly is it cleared in them and is it cleared um, because some of it is cleared by the kidney. I don't remember the exact percentage, but like a quarter or a third or something like that of HMB is, is cleared by the kidney. Um, and so it, it was still okay and everything was fine, but that was something we had to test ahead of time also. Yeah. Um, now kind of shifting gears a little bit, I, I saw you also did, uh, I think one study on blood flow restricted training. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. We, we have another one. I don't know. I, my co-author hasn't written it apparently or, or something yet, but we have two. It's just only one's been published. Okay. So kind of, <laughs> kind of a similar question for BFR. It's been one of those things that I've always been kind of loosely interested in. Um, is, is blood flow restricted training something that you often tell your own clients to do or that you, you apply yourself in your training? No, not really at this point. Um, my so maybe I'm way off base on this because I feel like I'm the only like science based bodybuilder that isn't on the HMB train or sorry on the blood flow restriction train. But um, you know my my thought at this point is, you know, 
a lot of the studies out there on blood flow restriction training, they look at high load blood flow restriction training. So like, you know, train or sorry, high load training. So 70, 80%, whatever normal load training. And they compare that to low load training with blood flow restriction. And they see the same amount of gains and they say, look, there's no difference. Um, that's how a lot of them have been done. So when we set up our study, we did, we volume matched. So we did basically low load training and low load training, you know, basically with or without a cuff. Um, and so that we could basically match. And the only difference was a cuff. Um, granted we used beginners, um, which is a limitation, but, um, we didn't see any difference. And my, I guess my thought is if you combine that with some of Brad Schoenfeld's work that shows that you can see similar gains doing low load, you know, I think he was doing 25 to 35 rep range stuff taken to failure and you see similar gains there to high load training. I guess I question what the need for a cuff is. You know what I mean? So I'm, I'm not aware of the exact mechanism, but there have been, I think, two or three papers now um, comparing high load training alone versus high load training plus low load with blood flow restriction plus mm -hmm. high load versus low load without blood flow restriction. Yeah. And it seems like the supplemental blood flow restriction work may not really do that much for hypertrophy, but it seems mm -hmm. to increase strength gains versus high load alone or high load plus low load without blood flow restriction. So that's, yeah, and that's, that's that, interesting that, wouldn't be, because... that wouldn't be incredibly relevant to like physique athletes, but no. for a strength athlete, if they're looking to increase their gains without adding a bunch of additional heavy loading, I'm not sold that it's going to have a huge effect, but th that's the thing that interests me the most about it personally. Yeah. Yeah. I just, I don't know. I, I just, like I said, when Brad, some of Brad's work came out and I just like, I fit that into what I kind of had thought. And I was like, man, that, that you know what I mean? That kind of really fits with what I was thinking that, you know, if you can just grow from doing low load training hard, close to failure, you know, why add it? And again, um, maybe some of those strength adaptations. That's interesting to me though, that it would be, it would enhance strength and not hypertrophy. You know what I mean? Like the low load with blood flow restriction. Yeah. yeah the... Craig, do they throw out like a, a purported mechanism for that? Yeah. Yeah. But the, the mechanism they tend to throw out doesn't really make much sense to me. Um, so the, <laughs> that, that's kind of why I was asking. The, the mechanism they tend to throw out is if you look at uh, EMG in low load training versus low load training with blood flow restriction, you see uh, greater EMG amplitudes with blood flow restriction than without. Um, and so they're saying like, oh, it may be increased neuromuscular act activation. That's improving strength gains. But it's still less, like still lower EMG amplitudes than you'd see with high load training. So I don't know that that makes all that much sense. I think it's more just that it, n not not like the magnitude of the uh, of the EMG, but more just it affects motor patterns in some way. Uh, and so I see it as more of kind of like a novelty type thing. And there is research showing that doing uh, similar but slightly different things can improve motor learning. So I think that may be what it is. So it's, it's doing the same exercise while also undergoing an intervention that affects perception somewhat. And so I think it may be improving motor learning that way. Um, but I haven't seen that put forth in a paper as a, as a purported mechanism. So I could be completely off base, but that's just the potential explanation that makes the most sense to me. 
Yeah, I could get on board with that. So, uh, so Peter, even with uh, with injured athletes, I mean, with injured athletes, you, you don't send them off and say, hey, try some blood flow restriction. You just kind of tell them to chill until we're ready to go. go well, I, I mean, I would I would just do lower loads, you know, and, yeah. and I mean, just it, it would be the same concept. I mean, just I don't know why. You know what I mean? Why do you need right. a cuff? Like just you can do sets of like 30 with low loads, you know, if, if that's pain free and while you're recovering and make progress um, as yeah. long as you're you know, training close enough to failure. Um, one thing though we did see in the lab, you know, with, with blood flow restriction is, you know, they see this in other studies too. If you put a cuff on someone and you take the same load and you have them go to failure, you can do significantly fewer reps with the cuff. So it decreases, you know, the time to failure. But I don't know if, if you're not seeing the difference in like, you know, hard outcome measures in a study like hypertrophy, I don't know if that necessarily matters. Yeah. And the other thing is you're like, oh, well, maybe I won't have to push those, those, you know, tough final reps of that set. It'll, yeah, it'll still be tough final reps. Yeah. They just come sooner. <laughs> I was going to say, yeah, it's like you just skip all the, uh, all the introductory stuff and get right into the horrible pain. Yeah. Uh, Cause I, I did a little BFR back in the day when I had a knee injury and uh, it's certainly not a shortcut to size. Uh, that's no. for sure. It hurts. There, a great there's, deal. There's also, so something I think that doesn't get talked about enough is I think there's also non-negligible risk with blood flow restriction training. Um, so not necessarily risk in terms of like actual bad things are going to happen, but it seems that blood flow, blood flow restriction training can be neutral to good if you're cutting off um, like venous blood flow, but not arterial. But unless you have a way to check that, I, I think a lot of people get their bands way too tight. Yeah, um, and end up cutting off our arterial blood flow, which probably decreases hypertrophy. Um, so that that's one potential risk. And then the other one is th- this: this is less a bad thing happening and more just possibly preventing a good thing happening. Um, there's some evidence showing that uh, the positive vascular adaptations that can occur after resistance training. Um, may not occur after resistance training with blood flow restriction. Um, because like, even though you're only trying to cut off uh, venous blood flow, that is still affecting the rate at which arterial blood flow can get in. So you have less shear stress on your arteries. So you have uh, like smaller positive arterial adaptations. Um, so again, like that's, that's not a bad thing. Like it's not deteriorating vascular health but it may lead to smaller improvements than you would otherwise see. Yeah. And that's one reason that I get a little nervous about uh, just kind of prescribing it to somebody if I'm not there is that um, certainly you want to avoid any kind of arterial occlusion. And unless you have, you know, a very sensitive pressure cuff and ideally a Doppler ultrasound to check, uh, it's tremendously hard to ensure that a client's going to do that effectively. Um, so like I'll do it myself sometimes to get around injury stuff, but, uh, it's, it's very annoying to apply the cuffs and there's a lot of uncertainty there. Yeah. And and what I was going to say when I, so I got an ACSM like student grant to do the study that, that I have published. Um, and when you get one of those grants, you have to go to like ACSM headquarters and be trained on how to use this cuff and like this, that, that is used in all these studies. Um, with like this fancy blood pressure cuff that like, there's like a pressure that you have to 
when you put the cuff on someone's leg initially, there's a pressure that you have to have it at just for like the tightness of the band. And then you inflate it to another pressure. And there's, it, that's what everyone uses. It's the katsu cuff. And um, so we, you, I actually had to go get trained for like half a day on how to use it when I got my grant. Um, and so it, there, yeah, there's, there's definitely concern with what is someone actually doing in the gym? You know, how tight are they wrapping things? Yeah. Now, now another aspect of the research you've done is the bodybuilding stuff. Um, yeah. So you've done, uh, you're part of at least one case study I've seen. Mm-hmm. Um, and part of the, uh, the recommendation papers that came out with Helms and a bunch of other co-authors. Mm-hmm. So what was your ambition of kind of making that transition from just being like a hobbyist bodybuilder toward let's actually put some of this on the books and get in, get involved with the research side of things. Yeah. I mean, I think it started when I was dieting for my, my shows in 2012, we realized that there really wasn't a whole lot of data out there. One, one of the other guys who was a, a grad student in the lab, um, he's not a bodybuilder or anything, but he and I were just kind of talking and, you know, we're like, I don't know what's out there for research on like, because he was like, oh, bodybuilding contest prep might not be that great for you. Is there any research on it? And we kind of started looking and a lot of what was out there at the time was, you know, bodybuilders have psychological issues, there's steroid use in bodybuilding. And, you know, you're basically going to die if you take steroids. Um, but, you know, what I mean, like, that's what you got when you looked in PubMed. There were a couple old case studies, but they were from like the late 80s, early 90s. It was a lot of the old school kind of bro methods. Um, none of the people in those studies usually were, were drug free. So there was, you know, confounders there. And so um, we just did a case. We just went to our advisor and said, hey, can we do a case study on my prep? And so we like outlined what we were going to do. And he's like, as long as it doesn't cost any money and you're not using space when other funded studies are there, you can do it. So uh, every Sunday morning, it's every other, every two weeks on Sunday morning at 7 a.m., we did like two hours of testing Yeah, because <laughs> um, that's when, you know what I mean? That's when you can get in the lab when nobody else is there, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so we did, we published that study. And then somewhere around that time, Eric was talking about trying to, he had approached me about trying to write some recommendation papers. And I was like, yeah, I mean, it, we need some more science-based stuff in the bodybuilding world. Um, cause people were doing a little bit more science-based stuff, you know, by that point, by like 2012 ish, you know what I mean? There, there started to be more, it used it started, it was starting to be less bro-y, more science-based approaches in the bodybuilding world, but there really wasn't a lot of science you could go back and actually cite or say, yeah, this is why this is probably a good idea to do. Um, and so, yeah, we, we, he approached me with that and yeah, we, we worked on some of those, um, and it's just kind of grown from there. So we got a couple other, I got a couple other papers in the works also bodybuilding related, but, um, I I don't know how quickly either of those are moving. So you're just going to leave us with a teaser. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, both, both papers I have in the works that I'm a co-author on that are bodybuilding related are, are far from publication stage at this point. (laughs) Yeah. So on that note, I do want to ask you a few things that are kind of bodybuilding focused, um, when I, you know, we, we've talked bodybuilding before. We both presented at, I think, Lane's camp like a yeah. million years ago. Um, <laughs> and I vividly remember talking to you about peak week in the back of yeah. a van. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so we, we, we were there on our own volition. We weren't by any means stuck in the van or bound. It was We were just sitting in the van. It's fine. Um, but we were talking about peak week. Are, now, you do the the 
the high high carb backloading at least back then you did is that still me, your kind of me personally yes as far as my clients there are a few maybe that can get away with it but it, you know what i mean it depends on the person i would say okay so so with you don't have that approach for all clients you kind of go oh. on a case by case basis yeah i mean you're you're not so peaking i mean there's some science you can pull into peaking um, you know, like it's probably a good idea to eat carbs and salt and water if you're going to, if you want to fill out, um, mm -hmm. you know, but as far as when you actually load someone's carbs throughout the week to fill glycogen stores and how you go about that, it, it, there's a lot, there's, I mean, it's, I don't know how you'd research it to begin with. And there's just a lot of individual variability. Um, there are some people where you give them a high carb day, say late in prep, they have a high carb day where their carbs are double or something like that. Um, some people look watery the next day and two days later, they look really good. Some people look really good the next day. Um, so those two people are going to need different peaking approaches that, you know, the person looks watery the next day and looks pretty good two days later is going to want their, you know, the, they, they would do terrible having Friday be their highest carb day for a Saturday show where someone who looks great the next day after a lot of carbs, you want to load them hardest Friday probably. Um, and then even then within that i mean you have the you have the question of is this someone i can deplete and try to load really hard and get glycogen super compensation or is it someone i just want to do like something more gradual like a front load or mid load or back load or something like that yeah and just so people listening are aware when we say front load we mean you're adding carbs earlier in the yes. week so if it's a saturday show you might start as early as monday yeah. and start increasing carbs and a yeah. back load would be basically Friday, uh, yeah, the day <laughs> or, before well, or two days before, kind of, yeah, rapid yeah, or increase. even or even building from like Tuesday, Wednesday, on, you know what I mean, and yeah. kind of building up to that if you're doing something more gradual. Um, but yeah, and then you know, do you, you know, so you know, those are approaches I would use. I would use something like a front load or a mid load or a back load without any sort of depletion. Um, if I didn't have time to test, you know, things out, even with the back load, I, I, even if it's a gradual one, I oftentimes like to test it because you have less room for air. Uh, you know, if you're, if you're loading someone with their highest carb intake on Friday, you better be sure that they look better afterwards because um, there's no time to fix that. Yeah. Uh, and so I think that's the biggest thing with peaking is if you're going to do something, if you want to do something aggressive. So, I mean, there is some evidence that granted it's from cyclists who they glycogen deplete through, uh, uh, you know, a lot of exercise and cycling, they glycogen deplete them, they fill them with carbs really quickly, and you see greater glycogen storage than if they had not depleted for a short period of time. Um, you can store a little bit extra glycogen. If you want to try to do something like that, where you deplete and then you load really hard in those last days, um, like when I rapid backloaded into my shows, I was doing upwards of a thousand grams of carbs Friday. Um, I, I actually had a guy last year do a thousand seventy or 1,375 grams of carbs Friday, and I still he still could have probably gotten more full. Um, so, you know, you, if you're going to do something like that, uh, you got to test it ahead of time. There, you, you should not be going in blind your last week and hoping it works. How does one do that? Is it just like an IV of honey? So when I, so basically it's got to be, so if you're going to get a thousand grams of carbs down in a day, it, and you're going to do it in a way where you don't have a food baby because you got to stuff on stage the next day. 
it's got to be stuff that you digest, absorb quickly. Um, also, if you're thinking about you want to fill glycogen stores quickly, part of if you're doing a rapid backload, for example, if you're depleting and trying to take advantage of trying to get some glycogen super compensation, it has to happen quickly. Like oatmeal would probably be a really bad idea. Um, you know, you're going to want to stick to things, usually stick to things like either drinking some of the sugar, candy, uh, you know, cereal, not high fiber kinds, rice cakes, white potato, you know, things like that are, are things that I would normally use. Um, things that, you, like I said, that even like white rice wouldn't be a terrible source, you know, something that you'd be able to eat and it'd be able to digest, absorb quickly. Um, and then on top of that, keeping protein and fat lower. Um, so if you can keep protein, fat and fiber lower, um, that'll help, you know, that cause all of those slow digestion and absorption. So you're just trying to get it in as quickly as you can. Yeah. Now, Greg, we got to stop bringing scientists on because I, what I was hoping would happen is I say, Peter defend huge carbon takes and backloading <laughs> for everyone. And I, I have, I mean, I have notes and notes here, just pages of me, me taking him to task on it. And he gives a very nuanced take like that. And frankly, I don't know what to do with it. I'm very <laughs> upset. I, like, I really wanted a cathartic release because yeah. when, when I tried, you know, a really high carb load into a show, I looked miserable. Yeah. yeah. And then and, I tried and, it a second time and I looked miserable again. And yeah. so like I, I had two seasons where I did a show that I didn't care about and then my big <laughs> show after. Yeah. And I always looked better at the show I didn't care about because I didn't bother peeking for it. Yeah. So I, I was hoping that we could really, I was kind of hoping to get tempers to flare a little bit, but <laughs> here we are agreeing. So, so your, so your ar argumentative strategy was going to be uh, to, to counter his point with an anecdote. Cause I mean, Correct. that, that sounds pretty strong to me, but just, just verifying here. This is how scientists do things. Honestly, Sick. though, with peaking, it, a lot of it is antidote, you know, at this point, like there, there's not like a, this is how you do it. There, there aren't studies. Um, and I don't even know how you would conduct them. You'd probably have to do like some measure. I mean, what would your outcomes be? Um, probably some measure of like muscle girth, like, you know, quad, you know, like how circumference, um, maybe like DEXA. I, I don't, you know what I mean? Like, why, I, uh, why couldn't it just be subjective? Like just, yeah, and that's just, just gonna get say, like a that, panel of 10 bodybuilding judges and have people try two or three different peaks, black their faces out, and then just have the judges rate what looks best. Yeah, I mean, because that, that's ult that's ultimately the outcome measure you're interested in, right? Absolutely, like, absolutely. What judges think you look like. And the hard thing, though, is I could give two people the same like approach and it'd be good for one and terrible for another. Like Eric is someone who, if he has a really high carb day the day before his show, looks worse. I actually have a time. I mean, I've posted before the time course of my backload and how much better I looked over like the 30 hours of loading carbs going into prejudging. Um it, it, you know what I mean? It, it, I looked really good. That's the best I ever looked. I got, I, I definitely saw super compensation because it's more full than I was ever able to get not depleting and aggressively loading like that. Um, but that's not the approach I would use for most people. Um, you know, I oftentimes my favorite approach and what I found to be really effective for, you know, some of the classes that don't have as an extreme of a look like bikini, for example, the, the looks not as extreme. You wouldn't ever rapid backload a bikini client. Um, and so a lot of times for a class like that, if you can have them ready a few weeks early and just start raising their food going into the show so that they fill out a little bit, I've actually had multiple occasions where I did nothing for a bikini client during peak week. They just ate as they normally would throughout the week. 
um, because we've worked their food back up and they're a little fuller. And I've had clients win pro cards and pro shows without any real change that final week in like a, a bikini division. It, typically, though, if you get into the more muscular, more extreme look divisions, you're going to want to do a little bit more than that. Yeah. But um, but yeah, it doesn't have to be, you know, just even being ready early and kind of reversing into your show can be a, a great option for some of these some people. I tell you what, Peter, we can plan that study. And what we'll do is use the uh, that old fat free mass index paper from the mid 90s. We'll just print pictures and say which pictures looked better. And then <laughs> if they take us to task on that, we'll say, fine, here's all the ultrasound measurements and the body water measurements. But yeah. there is precedent. And I say we go for it boldly. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I, I think, like I said, the hardest part with a study like that is that I don't know that there'd be one answer um, just because two people can do the exact same thing. It works really well for one and really terribly for another. Variability <laughs> can be measured. Yeah. So you just collect the enough like other measures of things that might yeah. potentially predict what people will do better or worse with. And then just p hack your way to significant results. Like that's that's how the game's played. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah, just just go mining for significance. <laughs> yeah, I just I just want to kind of make a note that I'm not participating in that part of the conversation. <laughs> um, I got nothing to do with that mess. Now, Peter, do you work with any strength and power athletes, weightlifters, powerlifters, anything like that? Yeah, some um, mostly on the nutrition side of things, but a little bit of programming, but mostly the nutrition side because. Um, I don't know if, if you've come across this, but I'm sure you probably have, but a lot of times people in the strength sports, when they go to cut, it's just, they have, they have all these ridiculous ideas or ridiculous methods they think they need to do. And oftentimes they drop a bunch of strength and lose muscle mass and whatnot. And so just simply taking a more reasonable approach to a cut to, you know, make weight for a meet, for example, um, they can hold on to a lot more strength. So do you use any of your... Um, kind of your peak week type techniques for depletion and reloading. Do you use any of that stuff in strength athletes that are trying to kind of do like a water cut before a meet? I, I haven't really. A lot of what I've used actually somewhat along those lines is those switching to lower residue food sources like the last day, just like how a bodybuilder the day before a show, you're probably not going to want to be pounding the broccoli and oatmeal and stuff that we keep, you know, with a bodybuilder the last day before a show. Um, typically, regardless of peaking method, I usually recommend low residue foods, you know, rice cakes, cereal, not the high fiber kind, you know, potatoes or white rice, you know, stuff like that, that isn't going to sit in your gut and cause a bunch of distension. Um, but I think, Greg, didn't you guys review a study in mass on, um, on low residue foods before a meet and you saw like, a, they, cause they saw like a one to 2% drop and, and you do see that in practice too, in body weight. Theoretically. So the, the paper was actually on, um, water loading, but yeah. most of the, most of the decrease in weight that they saw in that study was probably attributable to the low residue foods that they had people mm -hmm. on for like the entire week that they were doing the study. So what they saw was like a pretty quick two, three kilo drop in weight and yep. then kind of a plateau. And then with actual water manipulation that caused like another kilo drop give or take yeah um so yeah the the paper was theoretically about water manipulation but most most of the results are probably attributable to the to the low residue foods they had people on yeah and i i would say if you know you see that in practice if someone eats low residue foods like thursday friday or just friday even by saturday morning their weight does drop a decent amount 
um, just from not having as much volume in their GI tract. So, and I mean, that's basically, you know, that way I like that approach too, because usually then on Friday or the day before your meet, you can still eat your normal carb intake or calorie intake or very close to it and still see that drop, make your weight class and not have a significant drop in performance that you might see if you, you know, significantly pulled back intake the last few days or did something crazy with water, especially if you get to extremes, you know, those last few days. Um, and especially if you have a two hour weigh in that changes the game compared to a 24 hour weigh in also. So if somebody's weighing in, I guess the way I would phrase this question is you said, as long as you're not going too extreme, how extreme do you consider too extreme when it comes to like a short term weight manipulation for a competition? Uh, I don't, I don't know if there's enough. I would, I would say it may vary from person to person. Um, again, I, I treat the last week before powerlifting meet almost like the last week before a bodybuilding contest. If you're going to do something crazy, you need to test it ahead of time. Um, and so I think if you want to try something and say, yeah, can I drop, I don't know, eight pounds in the last week through a combination of whatever I'm doing, um, you know, combination of low food, water manipulation, low residue, you know, low calories, low carbs, whatever, you know, can I drop eight pounds the last week and still perform well after, you know, in a meet with a two hour weigh in, you may want to test that out, you know, ahead of time to, to make sure that, Hey, I actually can do this. I, one, I can actually make weight if I do this. And two, uh, I can actually still perform well because, you know, you, you, if not, you may want to get a bit closer you know, diet down, have your weight you're walking around at be a bit closer so you don't have to do as much that last week. Yeah. G Greg, have you ever done like a short-term weight manipulation going into a meet or have you just always tried to be stronger? Um, the the only time I did it was the last meet I did actually. Um, dropped from, I mean, it wasn't a huge cut, but I, I, I cut from about 253 to 239 in about four days. How'd you, uh, how'd your performance react to that change? Uh, so it's hard to say. Um, <laughs> cause the, as I was doing that, um, I also injured my back pretty badly, uh, in the dumbest way possible. I, I slipped and fell awkwardly on some black ice. Um, <laughs> and so, I mean, the meat didn't go particularly well, but it would have gone poorly regardless. So yeah, who knows? Pe Peter, I don't know if you remember this back in the day, but one time a very notable bodybuilder got injured going into a a big competition. Yeah, and the claim was I slipped on ice, and yep. everybody thought that they had just done something stupid drug related or yeah, yeah, something because it was a torn, related. it was a torn quad, right? And yeah, yeah, it was either a quad or a tricep or something. Yeah, but um, yeah, he was like, I slipped on ice, and everybody's like, dude, no, you train like a maniac. Yeah, <laughs> like you probably snapped yourself up in the gym. So um, I'm I'm not accusing Greg of anything, but read between well, so, the lines. Well, so so for for what it's worth, um, <laughs> bench still went well. Uh, yeah. Squat squat I just hit my opener. Deadlift I pulled what I needed to to win, um, but I still benched like 474 or something like that. So like strength felt like it was there, and it's just I couldn't load my back. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's also really upsetting that your numbers are so high <laughs> in general. Um, <laughs> a lot of people don't know that Greg doesn't lift weights. 
Um, it's just not a part of his life and hasn't been for some time. And if we did a combined meet right now, me and Peter versus Greg, I think it'd be more competitive than Peter or I would like to admit. <laughs> and, and Peter, that's mostly my fault. I'm not putting that blame on you. Uh, but, I, uh, I was going to say, I don't do much. Of, I, I haven't hit much of the big three recently. So, I, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm more trying to like tone right now. You know what I mean? I'm trying I, to tone up. I, so I would say I, the closest to the big three I've hit recently, or what I've been hitting recently, would probably be hack squat machine, RDLs, and dumbbell incline, probably would be the closest equivalent. Yeah. Well, we can work those into the meet. <laughs> um, now, Peter, from the very outset of this interview, you've been trying to play the role of the used car salesman, so I'm finally going <laughs> to indulge that inner desire. And uh, I do want to ask you a couple things about your book that you've been peddling so hard. Um <laughs> So you've got a new book out with Cliff Wilson, right? Yep. Um, and it's, it's available currently, right? Uh, March 17th is the release date. I think it's available on Amazon April 2nd. So I don't know when this podcast will be up, but yeah, very close. <laughs> so St. Patty's Day, celebrate with a, a lovely book. Um, so um, I guess the, the, my questions about the book are, first of all, who is this for? Is it for the coach, for the athlete, for the general population who's trying to get into bodybuilding? Um, really any combination. I would say you have to probably have some background in lifting weights. Like, you know, it, it, this isn't going to tell you this is how you bench press. This is how you squat. Um, that's not really in there. But assuming you have some background on how to lift, uh, this would definitely be a good guideline to answer a lot of the questions going into a first show. Uh, there's probably stuff in here, too, that ex even experienced competitors could learn or try out um, to potentially improve as well. So I, I think it could be either. And, and same with coaching. Um, it, it'd be probably a good book for coaches as well. Because, I mean, Cliff and I, we talk about science and it's science-based, but there's also some stuff in there where it's like, we do this and we think this, but, you know, we're not really sure, but this is what we see. <laughs> yeah. And I, I like that, especially when it comes to bodybuilding, there's so much um, extrapolation and conjecture. And a lot of times people in the evidence-based community don't want to go there because mm -hmm. they feel like they are anchored to PubMed. And in reality, a, a bodybuilding book that doesn't kind of approach some of those topics is an incomplete book, in my yeah. opinion. Um, you know, we're just really getting the ball rolling with this bodybuilding research thing. So I like that you go there and just clearly label it and say, we're going to kind of overextend a little bit and branch out. And here's what we're thinking. So I really like that. Yeah. I mean, I, I think a lot of people are just too intellectually cowardly to publicly state their opinions. I, I think that's a lot of it. Yeah. And <laughs> that I, is a hot take. Yeah. And I mean, I think we we do a good job of, of saying, well, here's what we, you know, and a lot of our, I like the way we have things laid out. I and mean, obviously I should, we, I'm, I wrote, you know, a co-author, but yeah, I like the way we, we have things laid out in the fact that it's not like, here's all the science. So this is what you should do. It's more like, this is what you should do. And here's some science to support that. You know what I mean? Like we wrote, we wrote it more in the way of this is what you do. And with like references to support it, if that makes yeah. sense. Um, yeah. So so if you were kind of because there's a lot out there to read in the realm of bodybuilding. So if you mm -hmm. were to kind of distill it down into a message of why your book, like what about your book makes it special such that I should read it? What, what's kind of your like little 
pitch or tagline for what separates your book from the others. And then uh, it's kind of a corollary. What is what are five things wrong with all of the other books out there? <laughs> yeah, and if you could use names uh, of the authors, that'd be ideal. Oh man, um, I, I'll I'll stick with the first question. <laughs> um, so, what makes our book uh, unique? Probably two things. Um, one is. When we set out to write this, we set out to write something that really could help competitors answer more questions than just how to eat and how to train. So yeah, there's a nutrition chapter. Yeah, there's a training chapter, but we cover a lot of other stuff. Um, we, I, we have an entire chapter on picking a show rate of loss um, because let's be honest, that is the number one issue. Most, you know, most number one reason most people don't place as well as they should. They just simply don't take long enough to diet. Um, meaning they either diet too fast and sacrifice muscle or they just don't get lean enough. Um, so yeah, I, I would say, you know, the other stuff that we, you know, we talk about posing, tanning, uh, what to do after the show. Um, you know, we talk about a number of different peak week strategies, what happens on show day, um, all of those type of things. So it's more than just, here's how you eat and train. I mean, that's in there too, but it's, it's more than that. Um, so that's one thing. Uh, the other would be that, Writing it with Cliff, I, I think it was he pr was probably the best person I could have written this book with because we agree on most things, but our backgrounds are very different. Um, you know, I come from more academic. I have the traditional academic background. He doesn't. He's very self-taught, a lot of experience. Um, and let's be honest, he's probably the most successful bodybuilding prep coach. You're very close to it out there. Um, but... I think the fact that we agree on most things, but we came to those conclusions, I, you know, differently. Um, you know what I mean? It, it makes the book much more complete. It's better than either of us could have done on our own. Perfect. Yeah. And, and so, you know, you, you are the academic who, uh, much like me, you decided to, you, you have that academic background, but you decided to work in a bathrobe and slippers every day and disappoint <laughs> your family. Yes. So, what led to that? Why why are you working in your bathrobe now instead of in a university office? Yeah, I, so when I started my PhD, I thought I wanted to be a professor at like a like a smaller teaching school because I get my bachelor's and master's at a, a more it was just you know a master's level university, more teaching focused, and I was like, yeah, I'd love to come back here and teach. And um, you know, as I you know as I started going into getting further and further into my PhD, I started having more and more people ask me hey, can you help me prep for whatever show? And when they're friends, I would just kind of help them out for, you know, nothing or free or whatever. And they would do all right. And, you know, and they would start, you know, they would do well and they would tell other people. And I started getting all these people inquiring I didn't know. Um, and so eventually that led to me kind of, you know, forming my LLC and started working with some of those people I didn't know. And it just kind of grew by the time I was done into basically, by the end, I was basically working a full-time job coaching and trying to finish my PhD at the same time. Um, but I, I really enjoyed the coaching side of things and I was really, really burnt out on academia and research by the end um, and, and all the hoops and whatnot that you have to jump through there. Um, and coaching, I, I enjoy it. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I, I just kind of kept rolling with it. And, you know, we're, what, three and a half years since I've defended and so far so good. <laughs> So you said that there are hoops to jump through in academia? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> wow. Um, well, this is, yeah, interesting. Um, well, Peter, we really appreciate your time, man. And we've had a 
at least I've had a very good time speaking with you. I'm sure Greg would concur. Um, thanks so much for coming on and for sharing your experience with us. And selfishly, I am stoked that you're doing what you're doing, putting out this really applied information. It's, it's nice to have you in the real world and outside of the academic silo so we can learn more from you. So thank you for coming on. Thanks for taking time for us. And if you're listening, certainly check out Peter's book. I have not read it yet because he hasn't sent me a copy. I don't understand why. I, 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 at the time of the recording here, I don't even have a physical copy in my hand yet. So <laughs> That's a suitable excuse. But um, I, based on what Peter's done in the past, I'm certain it's going to be a very, very solid book. And Cliff Wilson as well. Um, it, it's hard to find a more experienced coach than Cliff. So check out Peter's website. Check out his book. And Peter, thanks so much for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me. Hey, Peter, where can, uh, where can the people find you? Oh, yeah. Uh, so my website, fitbodyphysique.com. I'm on Instagram at fitbodyphysique uh, or I'm on Facebook also just as myself. Um, so any of those would be good places to find me. Cool deal. Yeah. Th- I, I echo everything Eric said. Thank you so much for, uh, for taking your time and coming on. Uh, this has been great. Yeah. Thanks for having me. All right, everyone. Thank you for listening. And uh, we are signing off. Thanks for listening to the Stronger by Science podcast. Now, Greg and I are not experts in medicine or health or really anything else for that matter. So before you make any changes to your diet and exercise habits, make sure you check with a doctor or another healthcare professional. If you enjoyed this podcast and you'd like to support it, visit strongerbyscience.com to check out the products and services that we offer. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.